0: The Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners, a free-flowing conversation with leaders in the HR community, talking about themselves, the industry, and their work, brought to you in cooperation with NERA, the Northeast Human Resources Association.
1: Welcome to the Hennessy Report by Keystone Partners. I'm Dave Hennessy, and today's guest is Paul Francisco, the Chief Diversity Officer of State Street. Paul's a leader in the DEIB space, grew up in Honduras, and shares what he holds most dearly about being born and raised in that country. He also shares a very funny story when I asked him how a young man from Honduras can move to the United States having never played American football and end up in the NFL. He also shares how competitive sports has really influenced his work today. And then we get into his work at State Street employee networks, how not all women experience the workplace the same way, what allyship is, whose burden it is, how do they foster it there, how small companies can be effective in DEIB. He also gives a very animated response about whether he sees his role to work himself out of a job. I'm joined in this discussion by Kim Littlefield and Megan Mandino here at Keystone, and I think you'll very much enjoy our discussion. And next up on our podcast is the Chief People Officer at Ocean State Job Law, Bob Selly, And now our conversation with Paul Francisco. Paul, it's great to have you on the podcast.
2: Dave, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. It was so nice to
1: finally meet you at NERA's 25th Diversity Gala. I have seen you speak in front of rooms and on video, but I finally got a chance to come up to you and say hello, and I'm so glad that you said yes to being a guest with us. And of course, you know we have the common connection with Nara and Frank McCarthy. And oh, I know that's one of the things you said, well, if Frank was a guest, I'll do it, right? <laughs>
2: Frank McCarthy was uh, the godfather of diversity recruiting. And I learned a lot from him. And I, I commented to you that evening that I owe a lot of my you know, professional success, I think, to what I learned from Frank and, and the time that he dedicated to sitting down with myself and Emerson Foster, my business partner at that time to teach us really how to do the work. You know, and coming from a former priest, Irish, you know, Catholic, it, it, was, it was so amazing. But if you knew Frank, you knew that he was an irreverent, uh, funny and yes. engaging type of individual. So, um, you know, and and that evening, Nira and Tracy and team always do such a great job of so, sort of keeping Frank at the, at the forefront of all of our thoughts. So, it was yes. great to see you that, that evening and to make the connection that uh, you have been to my home country. So, that was uh, really interesting.
1: Yes. In fact, I want to start with talking about Honduras. As you look back on it now, an early life moment that you see as an inflection point for who you become as a person, yeah. professional.
2: I was uh, 16 years old when I learned that I would be coming to the United States and at that time I thought I was coming for a brief period of time, two weeks. Uh, My uh, family on my mother's side had migrated here back in the 70s. My grandmother lived in in Boston and so did a couple of uh, aunts and uncles. And my mom used to come here every uh, holiday season. I remember landing uh, at the old Logan Airport, you know, it was November. And at that moment, I just realized it was such a different world than what I had experienced so far, and I was just so thrilled to, to experience it. But I think a pivotal, very pivotal moment from a career perspective and personal perspective was when, so we were staying with my aunt, my mom had to go and run some errands with my grandmother and I was home alone with my cousins. And i never forget this, my aunt said to me, whatever you do, just don't go over that bridge to South Boston, we lived in Roxbury. And, you know, to me, it was the first time in my early life that someone told me not to go somewhere. And the reason why I couldn't go, she says, because they don't like people that look like us. And that just shocked me because I grew up very free spirit. I could go anywhere. I didn't, you know, we were the kind of kids that we would, you know, leave the house early in the morning and come back when the lights were turned on. Right. And and we would roam the, the town where we lived in, in Honduras. And so to, for me to be told that I couldn't go somewhere, and, and especially to be told because of the color of my skin, really sort of shook me to my core. And that was a defining moment where where I tried to then understand the why, right? Why is it that someone wouldn't like me just because of something that I can't help, right? Something that I was born right. with. And, and so that began, I think, uh, subconsciously in the back of my head, a moment where I decided that I need to do something about it or, or that I wanted to at least investigate the why and began mm-hmm. to look into the, the struggle that black people uh, had had in the United States it was pretty early in my in my immigrant life I guess
1: I was talking to Denise Vargas she was a guest a former HR leader and she's In Honduras now, back in her home country, running schools for El Hugar in Telugu Aguzagaba. And I told her I was going to be talking to you. She asked, What part of your Honduran heritage do you hold most dearly?
2: So, all of it. Right. So, uh, for me, it's not either or. I really have embraced my Afro Latinx roots, my Afro Latino roots. I love my cultural sort of dexterity around language around foods. Me and my family are traveling to Honduras in a couple of weeks in a long time. I haven't been home in a while and and I'm looking forward to to reconnecting. But I own and love all of it. I was born in the north part of the country, which is in Tela, which is uh, traditionally a a more Afro-Latino enclave. Mm. All of us direct descendants of of African slave trade. But I grew up in the middle of the country where I was the only black child at that time growing up in this town called Sihuatepeque which is a very small, it's called the, the City of Eternal Spring. It was always 75 degrees uh, year-round. <laughs> it was beautiful.
1: Just um, like Boston, Paul. We're used to that just great like weather, too. Exactly,
2: right? just to the Boston weather. I would say there's no one definition of, of, of Latinx. Or latine and we can get into as to why I'm using interchangeably all the all the terms. But I think that there's a there's a special lived experience if you are Afro-Latino, mm-hmm. um, because of the colorism that actually plays out in Latin America as well, um, right. which is a, a, a problem that uh, a lot of us don't like to, to acknowledge, uh, and we're not as homogeneous, right, as as people might assign us to be. That the aspira is just so strong and so so different. Well, how
1: does a young man from Honduras end up in the NFL?
2: <laughs> I don't know. To be honest, it, you know I grew up playing soccer uh, and I grew up uh, playing uh, baseball and, and and basketball, and so when I came to the United States and I learned I was going to be staying to go to school here, it, for me it was a natural way to develop a network and connecting. I was at that time as uh, an English as a second language student. Learning English, I went to Cathedral High School in the South End. All my classes at that time were with, you know, my classmates who happened to be mostly uh, Asian, right, Uh, Vietnamese, Chinese. One day I'm traversing to the halls and I get asked if I wanted to join the football team and I obviously naturally say yes. I went home that evening and I was living with my aunt and I asked her for uh, some money so I can go buy some football equipment. I go down to the old Bradley store, I'm all excited, I I get all my equipment. The next day I'm showing up to the practice field and I'm looking around for the football team and all I see is people wearing these things on top of their heads and shoulder pads, at that time I didn't even know what they were, and throwing around this thing with their hands by the way, which I was like, yeah, that's interesting. And so the guy who had invited me, who's still one of my best friends, Terrence Stanton, happened to be the quarterback for the team. He had one idea of what the football he wanted me to play, and I had another idea, which was football, right, which was soccer. But that was another pivotal moment, right? It was a moment where I could have said, you know, oh, sorry, I made a mistake and, you know, kind of turn around and go back. Or I could just give it a try. So I decided to, and I ended up, I guess, being pretty good. I mean, but, you know, my (laughs) coach kept it pretty simple. You know, he said, look, I want you to play both offense and defense. Again, I had no idea what... Offense was or what defense was in terms of American football. And he said, look, you're going to line up here as a tight end when you look to your left or to your right, depending on where you lined up. When the quarterback moves the ball, you're going to run five yards. You're going to turn around. You're going to jump and you're going to catch the ball. Oh, okay, That's simple. Right. Never forget it. So he designed this play. It was called 58 Special.
1: You still remember the play.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, he came up with a play just for me so the first time i caught it what they didn't tell me was that i was going to get tackled (laughs) so i got hit pretty hard and so then the coach says well next time it's like you know you see those yellow poles over there just run towards those and do not let anybody touch you like that was those were my instructions so i did and and i got pretty good at it and i scored a bunch of touchdowns my junior year then uh, my senior year i got chosen as one of the team captains And ended up, you know, uh, going to Boston University, played football there for four years. Also was selected as a team captain my senior year. We went on to win the Yankee Championship, uh, conference championship at that time. But during my junior year, I was told I was good enough to make it. And my coach said to me, look, Paul, you have all the tools, all the skills, and you know I know that you didn't come here to try to go to the NFL, but you are pretty good, so you should think about it. Wow. And I did get an opportunity to play, albeit a short period of time, but it was a very edifying experience. You know, what I learned in the NFL and what I learned through sports and, and football and sp- uh, specifically sort of gave me a really good grounding on what inclusion, diversity, and equity Yeah.
1: I was curious about that. You already talked about how it was different in Honduras, professional sports, and then in the community in Boston, you saw three different perspectives about how race and diversity impacted life for you, right?
2: When you're part of a, of a football team, whether you're in college and there's 100 plus players or whether you're in the pros, with it's altogether probably about 70 players, you have a common goal, right? So you have a goal of winning games or winning a championship. You have 100 individuals that have grown up differently, that come from different backgrounds, uh, different religious beliefs, different political affiliations, right? But you come together and you become brothers and you let go of all the social constructs that have been put upon you and you come together to to accomplish your goal. But there isn't a whole lot of friction in terms of anything else because you're so focused on collaborating, on on learning the plays, on executing.
1: The common goal, the team, it just, it breaks down those barriers. And it's,
2: and it's about yeah. the team. It's not about the individual, right? It's yeah. not about the individual. And while you recognize individual abilities, right? Uh, yeah. On the field and off the field, as a coach, you put together the best team that can actually get it done. If you win the championship, every single person, including the staff, including the coaches, including you know the the trainers, right, and the water people, get rings because they each had a job to do and they did it well, right? Right. So when I came to Corporate America, that was the the mental mindset that I had, right? Like, hey, listen, we all in here, this thing together, we all trying to accomplish something. What I found was just to me, what what is this? Like no one's working as a team. No one's really watching each other's backs. No one is really uh, caring for each other and one another, right? No one is, is really supporting each other and so that to me was not acceptable and that's why I I decided what if when we do this work we approach it just like a championship winning team would approach it. You bring your personal strengths, you work on your weaknesses but absolutely respect and support everyone that is part of the team and you sort of bring them in to make sure that you get that goal accomplished. And I think that that's really what we're trying to do is trying to create teams that are well-skilled, that can achieve, and that at the end of the day, everyone feels like they belong and everyone feels like they can do their job. And whatever that championship is, whether it's making a product or whether it's- Managing 10% of all the world's (laughs) commerce, which State Street does. It's a pretty big team and it's a pretty important team. And so why wouldn't we want to do that and so that's why i think i approach the work the way that i do in part
1: i just wish there was a video of you in your soccer gear with your shin guards <laughs> and your goodness. soccer cleats and your
2: <laughs> thank goodness there is It's like watching you meet your friend that look uh, just lives in my mind
1: so let's talk more about state street now as you bring your great background and all of uh, your perspectives what's your philosophy with DEIB, or the vision and how it melds into the culture of State
2: Street. What we try to do is to ensure that it is embedded in everything we do, that it's not a separate thing, and that everyone feels accountability and responsibility for driving this work, right? So while me and my team are the subject matter experts, if you will, at the end of the day, we're not the people who are hiring, we're not the people who are promoting, we're not the people who are exiting folks from the organization. And so, all we can do is really work with all the leaders uh, and all the people here, for them to understand what the role is. Everyone, I think, hopefully by now, understands that this work is really is about you know, driving organizations forward is about innovation, is about sustainability. A lot of people think of this as a moral imperative. But sometimes people think of it as this is a, a values driven thing that companies are doing. And it's not, it's a value driven thing. Uh-huh. We understand that if we do this well, more people and the smartest people are gonna to wanna to come and work at Stay Street. More people are gonna to want to stay at Stay Street. Ultimately, our clients are going to be best served because we have the best team in place. We have the most productive team, the most engaged team. This is about playing with a full deck of cards. And you have 52 cards in the deck and every single card has a purpose. Every single card. Right? And every single card is different. But even within your suit, you play a special role. We have 40 plus thousand individuals here. So we all bring our own unique perspectives and experiences and all that good stuff. And we all have a role to play. What we want to do is maximize how that role plays within the larger deck of cards, if you will, figuratively speaking, of stage stream. Everyone should feel that what they do matters. Hmm. And so that's the way we approach it. Do you have enough representation? Do you have enough of variety in that deck to give you that competitive advantage? does everyone in that deck feel that they can play their role well? And in order for them to do that, they need to feel engaged, they need to feel motivated, they need to feel that they matter. That's the inclusion part, right? And then ultimately, you have to make sure that everyone is treated fairly, right? So that's the equity part of it, that's the justice part of it, which is to say, if if we expect you to be here, if we expect you to be part of this team, We must give you the tools necessary in order for you to succeed. And not everyone gets the same tools because somebody may already have the tools that they need, but this person may not. How do we make sure that we give them the tools? And that's the equity part of it. And that's how we approach in general the work. Because it is human nature, you have to make sure that you are addressing people at the most basic level and understand where they come from and and really have those conversations, right, amongst each other. Because again, right, we all bring all this different things that we've learned and been inoculated with, and then we have to sort of make sure that those things are not really getting in the way of getting the job done and not getting in the way of us judging folks unfairly because of just simply of a characteristic that they cannot help.
1: Paul, is there a program or an initiative that you have implemented at State Street that you feel has been especially uh, successful
2: there's something special about State Employee Networks, which have been around forever. They are our culture carriers, if you will. We receive a number of awards every year around how we do this work. But really, truly, the engine behind it all is it's how our employee networks and a number of volunteers from all walks of life come together to create community. The way that we sort of manage our networks, and this is a, a good friend of mine, Dr. Robert Rodriguez, has given us this model. It's an approach that we call the 4C What are the four things that networks can activate for us? And these are around building community, uh, building our culture, building our commerce, uh, meaning, you know, how do they help the organization help drive the bottom line with new creative ideas? And how do they help their members' careers? So our employee networks are sort of labs for us where we can try out a number of different things, right? They come up with some great suggestions and inventions whether it's around product, whether it's around services, whether it's around so community engagement things, right? They partner with a number of organizations. That from a like building a sense of team and a sense of belonging has been fantastic, phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And our networks are very varied. We have 24 named networks, but 100 different chapters. So we have networks that are, I would say, culturally based, cultural identity based. So we have a Jewish professional network, a Muslim professional network, right? We have a Bible study group. We have black professionals, Latin American professionals, but we also have a special interest groups, like environmental. Sustainability Employee Network, but they all collaborate, they all come together and then so they create this cross-pollination of cultures and demographics and backgrounds and identities, right, our Pride Network, our Professional Women's Network, one of the largest and most prominent networks, and they all come together and, and get, get the work done. So that's one thing that I'm very proud of and one thing that we continue to invest in and continue to make sure that they're, they're healthy and thriving. The other thing that we've done is that we've been very intentional around how we drive this work. This setting uh, some goals around representation, setting some goals around how we do uh, certain things that are, have impact the community. We've signed on to what is called the MLT Black Equity at Work Certification as well as the Hispanic Equity at Work Certification. It's a three-year independent audit certification process through the Management Leadership of Tomorrow organization. And that has sort of been really focused on how do we build equity for those people that perhaps aren't as well positioned in an organization. Give everyone the tools that they need in order to be mm-hmm. successful.
1: Accelerating development from underrepresented groups.
2: It's around representation, it's around yep. development, it's around equity, it's around culture, it's around supply diversity. Around a number of different things that, that it focuses yep. on. It's around uh, investments in community. And the last thing I'll say is uh, we've said diversity goals around representation, right? And we want to be reflective of the available talent in the market. And the, therefore, we want to make sure that we are able to attract or retain and develop these populations. We've set diversity goals for the last 10 years or so, and we've making progress in all the dimensions. Right now, we're measuring gender from a female representation perspective and people of color in the U.S. goals. And those have been, uh, for us, uh, very, uh, very successful in terms of us moving the needle towards a more equitable and representative demographic.
1: Congratulations. I want to bring in someone you know here into this discussion, Kim Littlefield. Kim not only knows you, she knows a lot of uh, your colleagues at State Street and uh, she wants to ask you a couple of questions as well. Kim, Good to see you.
0: Great to see you, Paul. Just always love listening to you. It's like we're sitting in our living room having a cup of coffee. So thank you for your time. One of the things I love about you is you're just so naturally passionate about this. You ooze it, you live it, you walk the talk. So many companies are struggling with trying to get their diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging initiatives off the ground. And I know what I hear a lot is, well, State Street has the money, State Street has the resources, State Street has the team. What would your suggestion be to an organization that's really trying to get this off the ground? Because a lot of what you're talking about, like the employee networks, those don't cost money right? Yeah. So what would you recommend to the, to the smaller company, the ones that really want to get it
2: going? My CHRO, Kathy Horgan, who is such a great supporter of this work, she will tell you, I'm the first one that's always complaining to Kathy that I don't have enough resources or enough money <laughs> to, to do this work. So, But everyone struggles with how do we do this work? I would say one thing, being intentional with this does mean that you have to invest into the work in the same way that you would you know, investing into your IT department to making sure your finance areas and your controls from a regulatory perspective are are set. But you're right, Ken, the best parts of the work that we do are done organically through our employees. Our employees are demanding this kind of work. So the one thing that I think is really important is for leaders to be able to give their employees the space to do this work and to make it a part of the daily job duties. That is really key and important. If you think of this as a separate and a nice thing to have, then it's never going to succeed. And if your leaders don't value and appreciate this work, no matter how big or or, or small the organization is, then it's not going to work. Because what tends to happen is you you have this push from your employees to do something, but unless your top uh, leadership is committed to supporting that, oftentimes what I've seen is that this can only go so far. You need the bottom-up pressure and the top-down set of support and uh, resource-oriented leadership. Again, embedding it into what you do as an employee every day. If you want to volunteer to be an employee network leader, that takes time right, and energy. But it is good for the company and, and it's good for the business of the company. So my advice is if you are going to try to do this organically, find a sponsor or two that are senior leaders in the organization that can be your sounding board that can be your support that can talk to their peers right whether it's their peers across or or, or an executive team to to sort of say this is important and we should support it and we should find a way to to do it employee networks is the best uh, way to start something Uh, not all organizations are going to be able to support a team that is fully dedicated to doing this work but it becomes really important then to recognize those people who are volunteering to do this work whether it's through their performance review process, right? Whether it's at, at year end, bonuses that get dispersed based on how employees contribute to, to the bottom line. Like I said, I will argue that this is part of the bottom line building. We're doing a lot of work with clients right now. And the goodwill that this creates with clients is unbelievable. And the partnership that is formed a lot stronger because of this work, I've seen with our clients. So I would say start there, start with your employees, figuring out how you can support them, but also you know making sure that you are resourcing this properly at whatever level um, you can. Paul, I
0: love what you said at the beginning, which is this is a value-driven initiative versus values. So how do you help senior leaders understand the value of this in terms of engagement and retention?
2: Well, just look at your turnover numbers. Just look at your hiring practices. Just look at who's leaving the organization, who's the most engaged. Look at your training costs for when people leave the organization. There's a McKinsey study that I think everyone is familiar with that says that if companies are gender diverse, they are around uh, 15% or so likelier to be more financially competitive than their industry peers. And that number jumps to about 35% or so if you are uh, more ethnically diverse, right? You have a number of different levers that you can pull in order for your business to be competitive, to be successful. And so this being one of those levers, why wouldn't you take advantage of that? Why wouldn't you want to say, I want to bring in the best talent possible in the world? And you can't sit here in 2023 and say that the best talent in the world only looks a certain way or only comes from certain set of schools, right? Or only comes from a particular set of training. The world is so fast and dynamic and changing that the skill sets that got you here, you know, up until now, are not going to get you there tomorrow. So are you really going to go after the same talent, even though you're in a new, uh, more dynamic world, your definition of talent needs to evolve. And so I think that those are the companies that are the most competitive.
0: Yeah, Paul, you're also bringing up that all of us collectively recruit as many diverse, talented employees as possible, depending on what the definition of diversity is that you're looking for. But if they don't feel comfortable staying there, right, if they don't feel like oh, they're part the
1: belonging of piece, yeah.
0: I love that the Professional Women's Network is one of the largest employee networks. I know from the onboarding work that you've been doing at State Street, that that has really been a great outlet for senior female leaders really feeling like they belong.
2: Our Professional Women's Network is just such a role model. They've done a really great job of looking at the issue from an intersectionality perspective. And what I mean by that is that they understand that uh, not all women experience the workplace in the same way. It depends on a number of different factors, including your physical characteristics, including your socioeconomic background, including your racial makeup. And so they've looked at at the issue from not only a a female uh, overall perspective, but let's break down how black females are feeling on State Street. How do we partner? How do we ensure that uh, women of color in general, right, have the same or better experience, right? How do we go across and understand how our male allies need to be part of this work, right? And how do we bring them in? How do we ensure that from a mentorship and a sponsorship perspective, we are matriculating women at the same rate as as their male counterparts. And and what are the differences? What are the inflection points? Well, you know, we can't give this assignment to, to this young person because, you know, she's about to get married. Like those assumptions we need to get rid of, right? Yeah. And, and we have to, again, treat everyone um, as individuals and just ensure that they have the pathways uh, to succeed. And so the Professional Women's Network has done a wonderful job of establishing uh, mentorship circles, of doing consulting engagement with the the businesses, of engaging male allies, of providing a sense of belonging to women at State Street and beyond. To be honest, they work with a number of organizations across the globe in the community to impact how uh, young women see themselves in the workplace. And again, they collaborate across a multitude of networks. You can't just be defined by one identity, female, you know, white female or black female. or There's so many more things that we have in common that we have that are different.
1: You brought up allies and allyship, and I was wondering, How do you foster that? How do you provide resources so people can be good allies inside State Street?
2: We leaned into this allyship work years ago when our our Global Pride Network developed an allyship program. And the way that we think about allyship by State Street is a burb. You actually have to do the work yourself in order to understand the privilege that we all have. I'm 6'6". I have 12 people privilege. Trust me, Right. (laughs) I don't like it when I'm traveling, but I I do have, especially as the seats get smaller and smaller, but regardless of who we are, we do enjoy certain privileges. And so how we activate those on behalf of others, how we leverage our capital, our social capital, and whatever else capital we have in order to, you know, support and help and understand, you know, how others may not have the same resources, I think is active knowledge of how we sort of actively speak about those injustices to others that have privilege in order to support others that don't is allyship, right? So it's it's active, it's engaged, it's selfless. This became really clear to us during 2020, Mm. you know, when many of us, including myself as a a black male, were sitting here trying to, to make sense of why this continued to happen, right? I had some wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people that reached out to me and said, Paul, what can I do to help? Now, on the face of that, that's great, right? But then, you know, some of it became, you know, can you tell me more about this and how you're feeling? And and, and I'm sitting there like, "Mm, I don't want to talk about that. So I don't want to relieve that trauma and I don't want to, quite frankly, share that I'm still trying to process some things, right? So at that moment the work of an ally is to say, you know what? I'm going to go and educate myself. I'm going to go and learn why this is happening and I'm going to come and I'm going to say to Paul, hey Paul, I'm here for you whatever you need. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I think I need to do. Right? And that's the difference between someone who who can empathize, right? And can acknowledge that something's happening, but it's like it's asking you, the person that's impacted, how can I help you? Versus them taking initiative to say, you know what, I need to learn some things and I need to understand why this keeps happening. And I need to understand when I go home to my home in, in, in Needham or in Wellesley or in this any of these communities that aren't as impacted, mm-hmm. um, you know, how are my colleagues that live in Roxbury or in Dorchester or in Mattapan or wherever are dealing with this and, and what can I do to ensure that when they go home, they feel the same sense of safety, security, abundance that we feel in these communities. But but let me actually understand, right, how mm-hmm. systemically and systematically this has happened. It's not that those communities are bad communities. Those communities have actually historically been under resourced, yeah. capitalized, so on and so forth. These are thriving communities, right? But but we focus on all this negative things that we see in the media and not understanding the real issues that we need to be um, um, uh, focusing on and so as an ally you have to you have to do all that work
1: how do you get those messages to people inside State street about how to be an ally and how to do Being, that self-work is there some messaging or training?
2: We have a lot of training. You know, we work with, the, for example, the Mass Conference uh, for Women to develop this justice, equity, and, and inclusion series that talks about. And we had actually a workshop on allyship and what does active allyship really mean. Ah. And so we have these conversations around what does it look like. We have conversations internally within our employee networks. Today, I'm having a, a conversation around allyship. One of the workshops uh, that we're doing at one of our uh, summits, it's with our uh, president uh, Lumayori around what what does allyship look like? For example, for senior leaders, and what is the, the role that you play? Our uh, learning management system internally has uh, uh, pathways around allyship, but we have a lot of thought partners that can teach us, show us, tell us how to best do this.
1: It's not easy. But. No, it sounds like, but it sounds like it's integrated in your networks and a lot of the things that you do. Yeah. Absolutely. We produce this podcast in cooperation with NERA, as you know. Yep. Megan, our producer of the Hennessy Report, is going to ask the NERA question of the podcast right now.
0: So this question comes from Tracy Burns. Dave was mentioning that you are acquaintances. She was wondering, have you seen a shift in the time, energy, and financial investment organizations are making yep in DEIB now that we are three years past? And if so, what advice would you give HR executives who are experiencing this?
2: Oh, I, I've we've seen the shift, we're living through the shift right now. Uh, and what we are experiencing, quite frankly, is a little bit of a backlash, right? Like, all right, so this has been three years now, can you all get over it? Literally is, is what some in some cases you, you kind of hear. And so what my advice to, to senior HR leaders is uh, you need to continue to be to be relentlessly focused, intentional around this work. We enacted, came up with uh, 10 actions to address uh, racism and inequality, which are uh, sort of have been a little bit of a no-star when it comes to equity work for us in the last three years or so. Our efforts have continued to be to be strong. Our resources have continued to be what we sort of committed to. A lot of companies in those days, some wrote checks, some made promises, right? I believe there was uh, over $60 billion committed towards racial uh, equity and social justice issues at that time. The Washington Post did a study two years later as to how much of that money had actually been deployed. Uh, out of $60 billion were committed, only about $200 million or so as of two years ago have been actually deployed. Wow the momentum has waned a little bit. Unfortunately, not a lot has changed. If you think about the number of, for example, of heads of diversity or chief diversity officers that all of a sudden were popping up in 2020 and 2021, huge, huge numbers. Every organization felt like they needed one. And then what's happening now is that you're starting to see those companies that didn't really mean this and weren't really prepared to onboard someone to, to, to lead this work are now some of the same companies where either the chief diversity officers are leaving, they're cutting the workforces, and some of these uh, uh, departments are the ones that are being impacted the most, et cetera. This is the time where companies really need to uh, redouble their efforts, recommit to doing this work, understanding that this is for the long run, this is not a short-term thing, and that what you've felt and experienced in 2020, that's really not going away, right? How your employees were feeling at that time, and your police are expecting you to keep up your commitments and to keep up this work. And while, yes, some folks are fatigued, if you think about the folks that are fatigued, they're the folks that have the, the privilege to be fatigued. Some of us don't have that option. We don't have that choice. Right? I don't have the luxury, right, of forgetting about the fact that I'm black or the luxury of having to worry about getting stopped uh, and what the potential consequences of that stop may be, regardless of my station in life, right? When I'm you know, wearing a, a, a t-shirt and shorts and I'm in my car, driving through a community. They don't know uh, that I'm a chief diversity officer at State Street, they could care less. And it's not just black people, it's, it's it's a number of different dimensions of diversity that you know oftentimes get marginalized. What I would encourage our allies to do is to continue to think about that. And what I would encourage companies to do is to continue to understand that this issue hasn't gone away and that you need to continue to be determined to change
1: things. Paul, well, I wanted to ask you about generations with their perspective to DEIB. We have a few generations in the workforce now. Younger people are pushing organizations to embrace change more and how it impacts your work.
2: These uh, new generations, I think, are pushing us to be uh, more conscious, right, and more engaged and involved in social issues. Uh, and there's no question about that. They care about it and they're vocal about it this generation believes yes I'm gonna work hard but I'm gonna work smarter and yeah you know you may be my boss but I use really smarter than me right and and they'll question your sort of social fabric and your consciousness and they'll challenge that so and that's a good thing and that's a good thing and we are or organizations can't tamp that down we need to understand how do we maximize their passion their value, their skill set and expertise. And then we get into the whole issue of from home and hybrid and, 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 how some generations are more apt to be in the office or want to be in the office. But some generations are my workspace is, you know, a WeWork or my workspace is wherever my laptop is. And yeah. I have a 14 year old and a 17 year old. And I will tell you that they are a lot more future focused, you know, environmentally and social focused than even our generation.
1: Yes. Is there something that you believe pretty strongly about with regard to your work that you've changed your opinion on over time?
2: Just because I'm a chief diversity officer doesn't mean I'm the most inclusive person. Doesn't mean that I'm the least biased person, right? <laughs> and So I do have biases. I do have things that uh, over time I've changed my understanding on, right? You know, one should seek to understand first versus being understood.
1: A friend of mine, Emily James, she's a DEI person. She asked me to ask you this question Is your goal to work yourself out of a job? Do you want to make sure it's not needed at State Street or at any organization?
2: That's one of the things I've evolved on. I used to say that. Oh, you did? You used to say that. I want to work myself out of this job. I used to say that all the time. And then I'm like, what? No, that's ridiculous. You don't see any CFO saying, I need to work myself out of a job, (laughs) right? Because everyone's going to know how to do finance, right? You don't see an IT person, oh, I need to work myself out of a job because everyone is going to know how to fix their own IT problems, right? You don't ever hear a CEO saying, I'm going to work myself out of a job because everybody should know how to run this company. So why should diversity officers or diversity practitioners? Speak that way.
1: We should not. Ah, this this is, is really good.
2: I will never say that again because the reality is, this job, like I said, evolves all the time, changes all the time, and you learn something new all the time. So, for me to say I, my job is to work myself out of a job, that's assuming that everyone, all 40,000 employees, all of a sudden, are the most inclusive, the most just. And the most equitable people in the world that good luck with that we should not think that this work is ever done this work evolves if it was static and if it was one thing that you learn and once you learn and you master it great that's not the case
1: it's a great analogy it's a great analogy i love it paul if you could give advice to your 25 year old self dear paul career professional advice what would you write in that letter
2: dear paul say no a little bit more
1: I <laughs> know a little more.
2: They know a little more. Because I'm so passionate about a number of different things, I tend to say yes too much. You're able to be more effective and manage a lot more when you give yourself the time, energy to think about things. And when you spread yourself too thin, uh, yeah. you sometimes are not as effective. The second thing I probably would have said is don't be so hard on yourself. Things have a way of working out. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes we're so focused on on accomplishing that one thing that we've always dreamt to do that we miss the signals of other opportunities because we're not paying attention and we're not keeping our head in the swivel, we're not being flexible, we're being very rigid around what we want to accomplish.
1: What do you want to make sure you don't leave undone over the next five, ten years?
2: I'm the inaugural uh, Chief Diversity Officer for State Street, right? And I've been in the role for five uh, years or so. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to be the last. And I want to make sure that the Ah. person that comes after me uh, is able to continue and is able to be positioned in a way that is the most impactful for the organization and the community.
1: The legacy of the role inside State Street. That's what you want to make sure lives and breeds going forward. Yeah
2: ensuring that the legacy of the position continues to live on for this 235 year old bank i think it's it's going to be a, a good thing
1: if you could go to dinner with any person in the world who would it be
2: either frederick douglas or harriet tubman malcolm x yeah, yeah. That, no, malcolm back to was, boston that would be yeah that would be a really good dinner
1: yeah. <laughs> and if paul something all of a sudden a chunk of time Shows up on your weekend or weekday calendar. All of a sudden, a big block of time arrives. What do you do with it?
2: I got a small boat last summer, and my kids love it. And so the more time I can spend on the water, I just find it very peaceful, very reflective. The time just flies by, and if it's a nice day out there, there's nothing like it. That's great.
1: The last question, we started with Honduras, yes. and we're going to end with Honduras. Go ahead. My friend, Denise Vargas, who I want to introduce you to at some point. Love to meet her. She's great. Her last question here was, what advice would you give to younger kids in Honduras? Message about diversity, building community, or success in life to Honduran youth. Of course, she's an educator. Yeah. So that's where her question comes from.
2: If a kid like me that uh, came from uh, extremely humble beginnings back home could find some sort of measure of success as we measure it here in the United States, there are some challenges, some special challenges yeah. in a country like Honduras. But they have the capability, they have the smarts, they have all the tools needed to be successful. I met some amazing young people from Honduras, one of them who came here as a recent college graduate and is now you know, working at MIT, uh, leading some of their more complex uh, IT issues. I would say you know, we need to do better in order to support that learning, in order to support those opportunities in-country. We need to create, uh, like Denise is doing, right yes. schools that are providing the, the necessary training. And then we need to, quite frankly, build up industry and jobs. And so those are things that I think are just systemically important in order for people to be able to achieve their, their highest potential. I wouldn't probably have been as successful in Honduras if I had stayed there just because of the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Right. And the opportunities are not the same as here. Right. If somehow Paul's family didn't find a way to afford for him to come, you know, to the United States, who knows, right? What I'll be doing, I'll, you know, probably be fine, but I'll probably, uh, again, relatively speaking, right, in terms of what we consider success here, I wouldn't have been on the radar. I wouldn't have been the chief diversity officer for one of the largest financial services institutions in the world. So, mm-hmm. so the potential is there for a lot of kids and, and a lot of young people. And, country uh, we need to you know figure out how do we how do we fix the systems that allow them to 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 leverage that potential fully yeah so and I would love to to connect with Denise and see you know I know that she's doing some wonderful work there and I'm
1: looking forward to making the intro sure thank you so much Paul for being on our podcast
2: thank you Dave thanks Megan and Kim my my regards as well thank you for having me
0: Thank you for listening to the Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners. Be sure to subscribe to listen to all of our conversations with leaders in HR. Go to keystonepartners.com and click on the podcast button.